So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 8. This is on page 956 in the Bibles in your pews. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there's no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You might be familiar with the organizational psychologist Adam Grant. That name sounds familiar. Uh, Grant is a professor of organizational psychology at the Wharton School of UPenn. And he recently published a book called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. And for me, uh, this, it's, it's not very common for me to venture this far afield in my personal reading, but it kind of caught my attention because as I was thinking through some New Year's resolutions, um, my, uh, my heart was stuck on one exhortation that Pastor Billy gave us last Sunday, which was to seek to grow in kindness in 2023. And that's a hard one to argue with, isn't it? Uh, it's right up there with lose a little weight, go to bed a little earlier, be a little more kind. And uh, as I was meditating on that and what that might mean for me, uh, I came across Adam Grant and um, what drew my attention to him and his work was what seemed to be a kind of common burden we share. Uh, it seems like I, as a minister, might share it with him and other people like him in various fields. And maybe you share it too. And it's this concern that with the highly ideologically charged and politically polarized day we live in, one thing that seems to often get overlooked or perhaps we've begun to lose the ability to do is to disagree well. 
we've no longer uh, had a good way to disagree with one another. And uh, I think all of us know from being in relationships for however long that it's really just a matter of time before you and I will just naturally bump up against things that we don't see eye to eye on. Yet, instead of viewing our disagreement as an opportunity to learn, to grow, to explore, to maybe even change, if need be, our tendency instead in this current climate is to either argue to win at any cost or to withdraw altogether. And here's where Adam Grant, I, I think, is helpful because he brings his own uh, perspective and angle on this phenomenon. And he describes three interesting personas that we might tend to adopt in the way we argue with others. Uh, the first is what he calls the prosecutor, also known as the logic bully. Um, the prosecutor will approach an argument in a way where uh, he, he's going to litigate his case so as to dismantle the other person's arguments. There's a second one who Grant calls the preacher, which is kind of an odd one for me to be describing in this very moment. But the preacher's mission in an argument is to get the other person to agree with him by proselytizing or selling his ideas well enough to them. And then there's a third one that Grant calls the politician who is either only interested in reinforcing his existing ideas with those who already agree with him, or he's willing to flip-flop his messaging if there's something to be gained from it, even though his actual beliefs might not have changed. Perhaps over the holiday season, you found yourself in conversations with family members or loved ones with whom you disagree on certain things. And despite your best efforts, you might have slipped into one or more of these personas as you went back and forth with them. Maybe even in this congregation, you're aware of relationships that have grown cold or strained over the years as disagreement over some matter of faith or practice has hung over you like a cloud. Situations like this can often leave us feeling hopeless. After all, shouldn't it be different for those of us who profess faith in Christ? Sure, we might not expect much to change on Capitol Hill, but shouldn't the church, at least, be a place where people are able to disagree well? What hope is there for us here in the church when all around us the world only seems to be growing more and more polarized and partisan? Well, I believe that that kind of question is precisely what our text this morning seeks to answer. In fact, as we're about to read, it's, quote, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures that we might have hope. What we'll see in this passage, friends, is a radically different vision for how to handle our disagreements than anything the world can offer. And it's all bound up in what the Apostle Paul calls welcome. It's a somewhat lengthy passage for us to cover fully today, so we won't uncover all the ins and outs of it, but it begins and ends with a call for us to 
welcome one another. And my hope is that as we spend even these brief, mo- brief moments to consider just what that means, what does it mean to welcome one another, and how is it possible, maybe at the end we'll come away a bit more empowered, a bit more hopeful to walk in love and pursue peace in this new year. So without further delay, I invite you to open up your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans chapter 14, and we're going to read, as Steve mentioned, Romans 14, 1, all the way through chapter 15, verse 13. Beloved, hear now the perfect, unfailing, inerrant word of God. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one observes the day, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Indeed, Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. 
Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this amazing section of your written word. What, a, what an astonishing glimpse of who you are and who we are in your Son. It is so different, so alien, so foreign to anything that the world could come up with by way of social organization, affinity group, entity. We stand and come upon holy things as we peer into this, your word. And so with that acknowledgement, we ask that your spirit would help us understand it. Open our eyes and our hearts. Lead us into all truth. Unite us as your people. Make us a radically united people. Differences and all. Disagreements and all. Help us to learn Christ in our relationships so that he may be glorified in your church. In Jesus' holy name, amen. What does it mean to welcome one another? How do we do it? Well, there are three things that are involved, and the outline's in your bullets, and so you can follow along. The first is personal accountability. What does it mean to welcome one another, and how do we do it? Well, it involves personal accountability. We see that in the beginning of our passage, the first 12 verses. Now, here's what's going on in the church in Rome, and I think it's important for us to set up the background so that we'll have a better handle on really what Paul is referring to in a lot of the things he says here. You see, although he had never met them in person, the Apostle Paul had received reports that a division had formed in the church. And you see that being referenced in verses 2 and 5. 
Now on the one side, there were those who, out of personal conviction, chose to abstain from eating meat and likely also drinking wine. And they also believed that certain days of the year were more sacred than others. On the other side were those who, out of their own personal convictions, followed no dietary, convic uh, dietary restrictions and observed no religious holidays. And it's on account of this difference between these two groups that they were inclined to judge and despise one another. On the one hand, those who abstained would condemn those who didn't, accusing them of being lascivious and licentious, whereas those on the other side would in turn despise those who abstained and call them fundies and overly uptight and conservative. But notice how Paul addresses the issue in verse 1. He does it in three phrases. The first is this phrase, weak in faith. He refers, he refers to the former group, those who abstained from eating meat and observed religious holidays as, quote, weak in faith. Now that might sound a little jarring to us because it sounds, in at least the English translation, it sounds a little pejorative. But what does he mean by this? What he doesn't mean is that they don't have genuine faith or that they're somehow spiritually inferior or second class. In fact, as we'll see, it's quite the opposite. If you were with us last year, you might remember from our study of the book of Galatians how Paul addressed the question of Old Testament dietary laws and ceremonial observance in that letter as well. But his message was very different, wasn't it? It came through loud and clear. He said, if you try to add any of these things, any Old Testament regulation to the gospel in order to be saved, you'll end up with no gospel at all. And we saw how jealous he was to protect the Galatians from spiritual abusers who were seeking to manipulate them with this false gospel, all as a means of self-promotion and religious power-mongering. Friends, that's not what's happening here in Romans 14. In Romans 14, the weak in view here are genuine Christians. By every account, we have every reason to believe that these are earnest believers whose consciences, for whatever reason do not allow them to live into some of the fuller implications of the gospel for their personal freedoms. And as such, the weakness of their faith is a weakness of liberty. A weakness of liberty. The strong, on the other hand, aren't so because they're spiritually superior. No, their strength of faith, if you would call it that, in this context, refers simply to their liberty of conscience. They are strong in their Christian liberty and freedom. And so we need to be really clear about these categories because what Paul is not doing is setting up this dichotomy and this tier system in the body of Christ where if you're strong, then you're really spiritual, but then if you're weak, you're not so spiritual or maybe not even spiritual at all. That's not the case. We're dealing specifically with the doctrine of Christian liberty. And we'll, un we'll understand as we go along why that's so important. And Steve read earlier 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In your time, I would encourage you to look over chapters 8 through 10 and see a different scenario. It's, there's different things going on in that situation, but a lot of the same principles coming through as Paul applies this understanding of Christian liberty to the Corinthians. 
But this is why, secondly, Paul refers to the disagreement at hand as a quarrel over, quote, opinions. Did you catch that? That word opinions. In other words, your choice of food and calendar is a secondary and disputable matter. Things the Bible neither commands nor prohibits. And therefore, it's not worth despising or condemning one another over. It's what theologians call the adiaphora, things indifferent. You can either do them, you can either partake of them, or not. And spiritually, intrinsically, it would make no difference, per se. And so it's worthwhile, I think, at this point to pause and ask, well, what are some secondary and disputable matters that might threaten to divide us today? Three examples I could give from my own life, and they kind of bring out different aspects of what could be disputed. The first is kind of a, a disputable matter of a cultural nature. When I was in 10th grade, my family moved to Korea, and it was the first time I had lived there. I was born here, and so very much a foreigner there. Um, and I was not a believer, but I attended a, a large church that was situated directly across from this massive golf range. And I learned for the first time that at least during the 90s, in Korea, to be an avid golfer and to be a Christian were mutually exclusive things. That for whatever cultural reason, uh, it was looked down upon to be a golf hobbyist if you were a Christian. And out of the cultural weakness of liberty in that culture, there was a conscience that would be pricked by somebody who claims to be a follower of Christ and yet is an avid golfer, especially on the Lord's Day. But there's also an emotional kind of disputable matter as well. Fast forward to uh, later that year when uh, the Lord did bring me to faith in Christ. I became a Christian by the end of my 10th grade year. And I remember distinctly one of the, the earliest uh, convictions that the Spirit gave me and that really weighed immediately on my heart was that uh, I had idolized music, and specifically secular music. I had uh, all my life been emotionally attached to it, and that it posed a threat to my devotion to Christ. And so I, like maybe some of you, in my youthful zeal, decided to give away all of my secular music, all of my tapes and CDs. And I know some of you young people are asking, what are tapes? I'll explain that to you later. But it was something that I, in my weakness of liberty, even would look down upon other fellow Christians who didn't do the same as possibly not as mature, possibly not as passionate, possibly not as serious about their faith. But then fast forward again to my freshman year of college. I was a part of a campus ministry that held 7 a.m. prayer meetings, Monday through Friday. And uh, I was still a fairly youthful Christian, very zealous and wanting to uh, wanting to prove myself as a faithful brother to my spiritual family. And so I very much felt that pressure, both without and within, to not just attend the Friday night large group meetings, but be at those 7 a.m. prayer meetings, Monday through Friday. And really, there was this sense where 
if you didn't do that, well, there better be a real good reason why you didn't. And there again is a kind of social disputable matter. The Bible neither commands us nor prohibits us from praying at certain times of the day and however many days in succession. Yet for me, it was something that I held up as what my conscience believed was faithful. John Stott says this, whether we are thinking of the weak with all their tedious doubts and fears or the strong with all their brash assurances and freedoms, they are our brothers and sisters. When we remember this, our attitude to them becomes at once less critical and impatient, more generous and tender. And so Paul tells the strong, thirdly, to welcome their weak brothers and sisters. Now the word translated here as welcome, it means far more than to tolerate or to simply accept. It means to embrace or to receive into one's heart and life without reservation, which is why he describes God's own welcome of us with that same word in verse 3. But how do we even begin to do this? Well, it begins with understanding personal accountability. And that personal accountability runs in two directions. First, each of us is personally accountable for our own conscience. And we see that in verses 4 to 8. In verse 5, Paul says, Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, when God welcomes you to himself in the gospel, friend, he sets your conscience free to willingly honor him through real-life decisions. Dear Christian, don't you know that he's far less interested in your following some religious program or spiritual groupthink, but that what he's really after is your heart? Yes, it can be hard work to cultivate personal convictions, especially when it comes to the gray things of the Christian life, the disputable matters. But God values your conscience too much to leave it in anyone else's hands but your own. So much so that, as Paul explains in verse 23, the weak would be sinning if they were made to act in any way against their own conscience. But secondly, each of us is personally accountable to God as judge. And we see that in verses 10 to 12 of chapter 14. One of my favorite worship albums is by uh, the artist Matt Redman, and it's the album Face Down. And it's just a, a great, complete work that dwells on the theme of worship as prostration before God, which is a, quite a literal, biblical uh, 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 reflection on how the Bible speaks of worship. And there's this kind of tagline that that uh, forms the arc of the entire album, track to track, and it goes like this. When we face up to the glory of God, we find ourselves face down in worship. And it's that same truth that Paul is reminding us of here, friends. When we face up to the judgment of God, we find our own judgments of others worthless and weightless and irrelevant at best. Whether we're the weak or the strong, 
The scriptures call us to take personal accountability for ourselves before God. And that accountability is the first step toward welcoming others as God has welcomed us in the gospel of his son. And so how do we grow in welcoming one another? First, it's by taking personal responsibility for our own consciences and before God as judge. But secondly, it's through relational responsibility. We see that in verses 13 and following. See, not only is the whole business of welcoming one another intensely personal, but it's unavoidably relational. I'm going to share a a somewhat touchy illustration that I thought of for this. And it's, uh, it's the topic of removing shoes in the house. And it's something that if you're perhaps from an Asian family background, it, it's kind of something you take for granted. But if not, maybe it's something you practice as well. Or maybe you don't. But the principle is not only for sanitary purposes, but it's also for social purposes. See, not only by removing your shoes before you enter the house do you not track what you uh, have on your shoes from outside the house, but the fact that everyone in the house is doing it together is itself a statement of solidarity and unity with one another. So much so that all it takes is one person to not remove their shoes in the house And everyone might as well keep their shoes on. Now, this is a weak example, admittedly, but I think it's one that touches a little bit on what Paul is getting at here in the latter half of chapter 14. You see, on the one hand, he even goes so far as to set the record straight when it comes to who's actually theologically correct, the weak or the strong. And in verses 14 and 20, he makes it plain that the strong are technically in the right. That, just like we saw in 1 Corinthians 8, there is nothing about meat or vegetables or any other kind of food that is either more or less spiritual than not. Yet look at what he goes on to say in verse 14. Nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, we're a good Presbyterian church. We're conservative evangelicals. And perhaps at this point, if you're like me, statements like this make you a little bit uneasy. Because, I mean, doesn't this sound an awful lot like moral relativism? You know, what's right for you is right for you, but it's not for me. I know my truth, and so on and so forth. Well, let's keep reading, because... It might not necessarily be so when you read it against the context of the entire argument here. You see, friends, remember that while issues like diet and religious holidays are disputable matters, they're still matters of the conscience. There's that conscience again. And in his mysterious sovereignty, God has designed each of our consciences to grow in liberty, but at their own pace. And so precious is your conscience to God that for me to impose the strength of my liberty upon you against your conscience would risk destroying the work of God in your life. And Paul says that in no uncertain terms in verses 15 and 20. We run the risk of tearing down, of annihilating the work of God 
in our brothers' and sisters' lives, when we insist that because we are further along in our Christian liberty, others must also be at that point, at that moment as well. The warning to us is very grave. And so here's the point. When it comes to disagreements over disputable matters, whatever those might be, the responsibility overwhelmingly lies with the strong to bear up the weak. And Paul, he makes that absolutely clear in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Which doesn't mean that the strong need to constantly walk on eggshells for fear of offending a weaker brother over some petty preference. But here's what it does mean. Beloved, it means resolving to do whatever I can to remove any potential stumbling block that my liberty would pose to a weaker brother being able to follow his own conscience in a given matter. It means refusing to brandish or parade my freedoms before a weaker brother so as to protect him from any temptation to violate his conscience out of pressure or shame. It means valuing peace and mutual upbuilding more than being theologically correct. It means walking in love. One of the most heartbreaking memories I have from uh, my final years with my grandmother was a time in my life when I was uh, beginning to learn some uh, Japanese traditional scale patterns on the guitar. And so I just got into this mode where I was listening to a lot of traditional Japanese music and trying to just uh, transpose all of it to the guitar and learn the techniques. And so I was doing this, uh, it was just another day at home, and I was in high school at the time, my grandmother was living with us, and uh, I remember after I had finished practicing, I had walked into the room she was in and found that she had been crying. And it was later that I found out through my mother that certain things that I, were, I was playing had triggered very difficult and very painful traumatic experiences for my grandmother uh, that took her back to a time when the Japanese were occupying the Korean Peninsula. And she had suffered horrific things during that period. And I had no idea. Uh, but clearly it was something that uh, had touched a deep part of her heart. And for me, would have never, I would have never made that computation. Yet what I think the next step for me was, was absolutely clear. And I'll tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't for me to dig in my heels and say, you know what, it's just music. I don't know what the big deal is. I like it. It's just sounds. There aren't even any words. I don't, I don't see what the big deal is. You know, she'll be okay. And it doesn't take much explanation to see how absurd and how unloving that would have been. Even though for me, those were just sounds and I still to this day enjoy that music. Yet knowing that for my grandmother, it was that painful for her to even hear. It changed everything. It changed everything. William Barclay says this, a new age would dawn in the church if we remembered that our rights are far less important 
than our obligations. Beloved, to the stronger brothers and sisters among us, what are those freedoms God might be calling you to curb for the sake of peace and mutual upbuilding? Perhaps there's a weaker brother or sister in your life who comes to mind. What would it look like for you to use your strength of liberty, to alchemize it in a way that instead of serving yourself, it would serve them in their weakness? Don't believe the lie that the only way to enjoy your freedom is to exercise it. In fact, as Sinclair Ferguson cautions, it just may be that your need or your perceived need to exercise your freedoms is a sign that you're no longer free. True freedom, true Christian liberty is the fortitude and the resilience and the sturdiness of conscience to forego your rights because you value a weaker brother's or sister's conscience. That is true strength. Didn't Christ himself go before us in this way? He who, despite all his rights to the contrary, chose not to please himself, as Paul tells us in chapter 15, verse 3. But rather, he bore all manner of unjust reproach voluntarily. Why? Why would he put himself through that? Well, we know it was in order to welcome us into his kingdom. It was an emptying of himself so that we might be filled. John Chrysostom says this, He had power not to have been reproached, power not to have suffered what he did suffer, had he been minded to look to his own things. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, says St. Paul. So we welcome one another first by taking personal accountability for our consciences before God, but then not just keeping that there, but extending and moving out towards our weaker brothers and sisters in relational responsibility. But thirdly, kingdom priority. And we see that in the final section of our passage today, verses 5 to 13. Our passage concludes with two benedictions, two well wishes, sandwiching a series of four Old Testament quotes. And within those four Old Testament quotes, you have represented the entire Old Testament canon, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And that's intentional on Paul's part because he's wanting to signal that the kingdom of God in toto is at stake when it comes to this call for us to welcome one another. And while it might seem like Paul is hard pivoting into a different topic here, really, he's landing the plane. Verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That therefore should signal to us that we want to know what it's there for. He's connecting everything he's just said to what he's just about to say. And it's this. We're able to welcome one another not only through our personal accountability and relational responsibility, but ultimately through the coming of his kingdom. And here's the good news, friends. His kingdom has come. And it's also coming. How do we know? Epiphany. Today we're celebrating Epiphany. 
Paul tells us in verse 8 that through the finished work of Christ, God's kingdom has not only dawned on one homogenous people group, but has rolled out the welcome mat for Jew and Gentile alike. In other words, the deepest and darkest lines that once divided us from God and from others have now been healed through the cross. And it's when we find our relationships with one another planted along the arc of this grand story that we can begin to move toward one another, even those with whom we sharply disagree, with fresh hope and love, and yes, with kindness. And with Martin Luther, we can save ourselves. A Christian man is the most free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great work of Christ in bridging the divide, not only in our ruptured relationship with you, but in our damaged relationship with one another. We come to you as fragmented people. We know that there are many fissures in this fellowship. And those cracks, they extend outward beyond these walls as well. In our families, in our friendships, in our acquaintances even, uh, from low-grade tension to all-out animosity. And sometimes we throw up our hands and ask, what can heal this? Yet, we know that you mean to begin with us here in your house. We know that you have made us one people in reality. That is the objective, indicative truth of what Christ has accomplished. He has forged the bonds of our fellowship, and they are unbreakable. Yet, our faith is weak. We don't live into that reality. So would you help us by your spirit as he has spoken through your word and now attends to us at your table. Give us grace. Make us kind, agreeable people. Not for the sake of our own benefit, not for tranquility in our lives, not for peace and quiet, but so that your name would be made great beginning in our relationships and radiating out to those who have never heard the hope of the gospel before so that the nations even would look upon us and marvel and inquire as to what God this is who makes the two one. Help us to that end. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.